All right, so I think we're live here today on our first Friday in June. Can't believe it's already June. Uh, Peter and I are just talking. My kids are at home anxiously waiting for me to get back and take them to the pool since it's the first day that the pool is open. Uh, but this is way too an important topic. We want to have uh, talk about this first, and we have a great guest today. Peter Osmond is going to be talking about estate planning basics. So if you were a part of our Women in Wealth Week last week, we heard from Shana. Shana is Peter's partner. Um, and uh, Shana and I just talked for an hour at lunch. And the rest of you that joined, it was great and had a lot of talk about process, but we really didn't cover any tool or strategy. And so we have Peter on today to cover some of that. So how are you doing today, Peter? I'm doing great, Michelle. And I appreciate you taking the time here and, and inviting me to, to, to join and, and talk a little bit about some of these, again, like you said, some of the tools relating to estate planning and strategy. Yeah, I figured we might need a man's perspective since, again, Shane and I like to just talk, Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is important, right? I think both of you and Shana do a lot um, conversationally, meaning when someone comes in and they say, hey, I want a will or I want to trust, I think you always kind of wait, take a step back, just like we do in the financial pro world, instead of saying, yes, this is what you, okay, let me facilitate that. Let's take a step back and make sure that that's really what you need, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's not product driven or document driven, it's goal driven and, and, and you know, sort of, sort of prior, client priority driven. So yeah. a big part of it is always that conversation. Yeah, so I, I thought it was good to like start with that today, just to reiterate that. So while we're going through some of these and maybe answer some questions, you know, if you don't call Peter and Shana and say, hey, I want to trust or I want that, you know, it's going to be starting with a purpose. And I would encourage you not to call anybody and do that because that's where, you kind of get into trouble when you're just trying to kind of throw throw things in kind of like I always joke say it like if I'm remodeling or doing something in the house and I just go to the store and buy something because I like it and then bring it home and now I have to try to figure out how to make it work in my bathroom or my kitchen right you always need to look at where what you want and how it's going to work and then kind of go around versus buying the product and then trying to make it fit into your space right yep. so yeah so, but with that said, let's start off a couple of the basic questions and we, that we talk about, I think people kind of get confused on is kind of what a will is and what a trust is, because they're two kind of unique, they can be composed, some of them, you know, some of the features are might similar, but there's a lot that's different. So do you want to maybe start with that and just kind of go through a little bit of definition on those things? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a conversation we would go through with any client at an initial meeting, regardless of whether they called saying they wanted a will or saying they wanted to trust. We want to go through and help them understand, at least on the front end, what the differences are so that they actually are selecting the right document for themselves. So <clears throat> the, the starting with the similarity between wills and trusts, uh, the similarity is that they're that, that both documents are aimed at the same purpose. In other words, both documents are aimed at the goal of distributing assets post-death and allocating assets amongst your beneficiaries. So these, these are assets are going to, these, these documents are going to be asset transfer tools and are going to be relevant in the distribution of a person's estate. That's about where the similarities between them end though, uh, because they're much different in terms of how they're used and how they're administered. Um, the way I often describe it is that a, a will is what I would call a reactive uh, estate planning document. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is that the will, you draft it during your lifetime, you spell out who should be the executor, you spell out who your beneficiary should be, 
Um, but it simply reacts to whatever assets happen to be a part of your estate at the time that you pass away and distributes those assets that are a part of your estate, again, reactively. You don't do anything during lifetime other than draft the will with the assets to coordinate them with that document or with that planning tool. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, that obviously then <clears throat> conversely, a trust, specifically what we call a living trust, is a proactive estate planning tool because you are going to not only draft the document during your lifetime, but you're going to proactively coordinate the assets that you do own with that trust prior to death. So during your lifetime, you're, you're taking that proactive step of actually getting the assets aligned with the estate plan. I like that definition between reactive and proactive. I've really not ever thought about it that way, but it's, it's very true. And a lot of times I think we all know, I mean, I relate it back to sports because that's what I like, but you know, you want to be, you could relate it to lots of things. It's better to be proactive, you know, <clears throat> than reactive. I think we were just watching a movie the other day with the kids. I think it was called Woodland. It was about this um, running back touchdown, Tony, and he was at first afraid to get hit. Okay. And then the coach goes, he's like, this is a contact sport. Yeah. If you hit them first, it feels good. <laughs> and, he's just, and, it, and I thought it's true. But I mean, that's the whole thing about being proactive, right? You can, you can accomplish more by being proactive in planning. Um, now I'm not saying that you never use a will, but I like the kind of the different definitions with that. Absolutely. And again, some of that helps clients to just understand on the front end, okay, well, what is my style? You know, do I, if, you know, obviously if you're proactive, what that gains you is a little bit more control uh, over the process, a little bit more control over the outcome, because you're do taking that next second intentional step during lifetime. Um, you know, if you take those concepts and apply them then to, okay, so what does that mean? Or how do they actually differ then when I said they differ in terms of administration? Probably the biggest uh, legal technical difference between the two is that a will, because it's reactive and assets can't be coordinated with it during lifetime, a will relies on the probate court to administer and distribute the assets post-death. Whereas a trust, because ideally we've drafted the trust and proactively aligned the assets with that trust document, uh, the, the trust is going to eliminate or the trust plan should fully eliminate probate post-death, meaning that your heirs, your executors, your, your successors don't have to deal with the court, don't have to go through the probate process in order to administer the assets. Right. Yeah, I think we have often described it, you know, sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to go through probate, therefore I need a will. And really a will, what we say is like your ticket into probate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we, we similarly, you know, a will guarantees a probate because a will can't do anything. It doesn't have any power without the authority of the probate court. All of the will statutes <clears throat> rely on that probate process in order to carry out the, the distribution. Um, and so that's that kind of implies two things. You know, one, and I think we'll touch on this with some of the other concepts, but one, it means you, with a will, you do have to go through a probate for the will to be effective. And again, we'll touch on later why that also means the will doesn't necessarily direct the distribution of all of your assets because of some of the different ways that some assets might transfer outside of probate inherently through beneficiary designations, transfer on death designations. So, um, so again, making sure that's understood 
And again, you know, we have so many clients, even after they've drafted a trust, who refer to it as their will, because in their mind, right, the will is just, that's the document, that's what we associate with estate planning as a will. Um, but you're absolutely right, that a will is going to guarantee a probate, a trust, if drafted properly and funded properly, is going to eliminate any court involvement. Right, and so the reasons people might want to avoid probate right. is for cost, right, you know, yeah. lower cost. Uh, two time, it's timely. It can take, I, I think the last I saw was an average of a year, year and a half to go through probate courts. Yep. Right? Um, and then it's public <clears throat> record. So not that everybody does it, but you can go and look up probate records, right? Are those uh, the three things that you would say mainly where people would want to avoid probate? Yeah, you're spot on. It's, you know, the cost in terms of court fees and attorney's fees can be pretty significant. Oftentimes between uh, three and six percent of the estate's value will be spent just administering the probate in legal and professional fees as well as court fees. Um, time, yeah, spot on with a year, year and a half is pretty typical. <clears throat> and that's for what we would call a straightforward uncontested probate. So you know, even when things are simple, you're still assuming a year, year and a half to administer the estate. If they are not simple <clears throat> or if there are disputes, then all bets are off. You know, we've had four-year probates here. We've had uh, probates that are still open from, you know, five plus years ago. Um, and these usually are not large estates. Contrary to popular opinion, it's not the big large estates that everybody fights about. It's often the, the small estates uh, where the people are fighting tooth and nail over every dollar. So uh, that's absolutely a factor. Um, and then that public nature, you know, the public record side of it is one thing that, yes, you know, that means somebody can look up how much money you had who's inheriting it, how to contact those people, how much they're inheriting. Um, but also because it's public record, that's where you start to get concerned about the concept of, of disputes and will contests because there are what we call statutory interested persons, which include your natural heirs as well as your creditors who can dispute the proceedings, who can contest the will, who can contest who the executor should be. And so you're just opening the door to potential issues when you open that probate. Right. So from my gathering, and you can say what I would say, and I'm sure you guys direct this too, is there's times when you might need, you want the will because you, maybe your kids don't get along or there's other outside source and you want the control to not be with somebody you appoint, but put it into the court's hands to hopefully that they would do your will, your purpose, but to maybe not put that stress on one person or is that kind of when you would recommend using or you know what you see sometimes it might be you know we've heard that from clients right well my family's going to need a judge to sort things out post-death right we need a court to to put some boundaries on what's going on here and that's fair you know and and, and some people like the structure of a probate some people actually like the public accountability of it you know because they're worried that if if one of their kids or one of the family members is in control that they're going to do something illicit and there won't be anybody to check them. Um, <clears throat> now, for some of those clients, I do at least, you know, in that context, I ask them, okay, well, if you need somebody overseeing your family, then who's best suited to do that? Is it a judge at a probate court? Or does that just mean within the structure of a living trust, we need to have a further discussion about who that trustee should be, right? Who should be the person in control? Maybe it isn't a family member. Maybe it's not one of the kids. Maybe it's a bank or maybe it's your CPA. You know, maybe it's some kind of professional. <clears throat> and now we are getting some of that oversight in the third party sort of ne or neutral party. 
but we're not do doing it in a court setting, right? We're not doing it where it's public. Yeah, so I think, and that just brings up the whole point that when you and Shana talk, instead of telling some, instead of saying, okay, sure, we'll do the will or we'll do the yeah. trust, it's getting to be what your goals are, what you're, and what you brought up is what's a concern, right? Right. If it, and maybe it's you just don't want them to fight well then there's multiple ways to handle it and that's where the conversation comes into place right yeah and i think you know it's important to know that that, that that's exactly what we use those first meetings with clients for is, is to understand their goals to probably correct some misconceptions in many times uh, many cases and also to challenge even what they say their goals are for example we have a lot of clients who come in and the first thing they say is well i want to avoid probate I need to do whatever I need to do to avoid probate. And I'll ask them first if they know what probate is. And oftentimes they don't, right? And I said, well, why do, how, why do you want to avoid it if you don't know what it is? Not because I, I disagree with them, but I don't want anybody just acting based upon an impression, right? Or something they heard. I want them to have the understanding first. So it doesn't mean I'm trying to talk them into a probate. I just want to make sure they know what they're asking for before they state it as a goal of theirs. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And having the, and I think a lot of times it comes down to probably control and having, um, yeah. keeping control and making sure things are done the way you want. You've worked hard for this wealth, yeah. keeping it the way you want. So yeah. uh, now there was a, a thing, a couple of things you mentioned before too, that kind of take precedence like over a will or a trust truthfully, yeah. and that is beneficiary designations. And so we all know about beneficiary forms and they're on like IRAs and life insurance, um, and then you mentioned two other things where you can have a TOD, right? Transfer and death on like individual stocks or <clears throat> yep. sometimes even property in a certain, in Wisconsin anyways, and then PODs is payable on death. And so I always tell the difference is a POD, if you have a POD and a bank account, the bank account just pays that out to a person yep. where a TOD, if you're holding a stock, it just transfers the stock to the yep. other. Now. I mean, there's times to use these and probably times to not, but the one thing I want, and you can comment, but one thing I think is really important to point out, and then I'll let you go where you want with it, is that a lot of times people don't understand that those beneficiary forms trump everything else. So yep. it doesn't matter if you have a will or a trust and you haven't changed, if you haven't changed that beneficiary form, it really trumps everything else that you're, that you're doing. And yep. I mean, you can see some crazy cases. We've showed it before where you know, a husband or a widower got left out of the will because, or that left out of the big IRA account because, you know, the husband was married, wasn't married when he set it up and never went back and changed the beneficiary. So, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we could probably, you and I combined, <clears throat> could probably talk for hours about those horror stories where, you know, uh, instead of a spouse, it was a, a best friend because they worked together when they first got the job that was the beneficiary. Or in some cases, it's an ex-spouse that's still named as a beneficiary uh, on, a, on a document. Parents are named as a beneficiary because the person wasn't, as you alluded to, married at the time. Um, so, but that's exactly the, the right way to think about it. The, you know, the, the analogy to you know, playing cards is you're, you're exactly right. The beneficiary designation is the trump card. <clears throat> it always wins. Whatever it says on that beneficiary form is going to carry forward, even if it's clear that it doesn't match the person's intent. It's just as simple as the financial institution is going to pay out to whatever, at whatever direction that beneficiary document tells it to. And it's going to do that, you know, the advantage of it, it's going to do it in a non-probate fashion, right? Those are all non-probate uh, transfer documents that can be positive in many cases. <clears throat> and we often refer to those beneficiary designations as mini estate plans. 
right? If you have a beneficiary designation or a TOD or POD on every asset, you have a bunch of mini estate plans. You just don't have one comprehensive estate plan and each one operates independently of another. That's a good way to put it. I, you know, yeah, that's a very good way to put it. So <clears throat> they certainly have their place and they, they have their value. And in some cases we have to use the beneficiary designation, right? Life insurance, that's the only way it transfers is via that beneficiary designation. But then it's understanding, well, how do I want to use that beneficiary designation? Do I want it to pay directly to my kids? Well, in my case, I don't because they're you know 11 and 12 years old. So I don't want the money to pay directly to them. I'd rather have it pay through my will or trust, but I really don't want it to pay through my will because now I forced a non-probate asset to go through probate. So I think that's one of those decision points and dilemmas that clients who use a will often face, especially if they have minor kids, is saying, okay, well, <clears throat> my kids are 11 and 12, and the will spells out that they can't access the money directly until they're 30, and it's managed by their aunt up until that time, right? Something along those lines. Well, now I, now I have a dilemma with the life insurance. Do I leave it to the will and my estate, which means I'm forcing it to go through probate when it wouldn't have had to, or do I leave it directly to my kids, which means they get it when they're 18? I don't know if either of those is a good result, right? right. <laughs> and so we have to, sometimes you're having to make priority-based decisions. <clears throat> the reverse, in the reverse with the trust, it, you don't, you're not presented with that same dilemma because the trust avoids probate. So I could designate my trust as the beneficiary on the life insurance, and now I've eliminated probate still, and I've coordinated the life insurance with my distribution pattern. Right, right. So I think that's why the conversation and I, where it also comes up, you know, so we have a lot of clients, right, that are retired or in, entering retirement, and maybe they don't have the same thing where they have young kids, they yep. might have grandkids. Um, but another thing would be is if they're at all concerned about the child's, you know, their kids grown or not ability to manage or you know, worried about divorce or worried about any lawsuits or different things like that, then a trust can sometimes offer a little bit more protection. Yep. Uh, right. And that would be the other way at times you might think about that, or at least things to talk through when you're making the decisions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, so often, you know, when we talk about beneficiary designations and TOD, for most clients, it's not, should I use these or should I not? It's how do I use these effectively within my estate plan? And how do I make sure they're coordinated with my planning goals? So, you know, when we talk about inheritance under a will or trust, you know, often we focus on restriction, right? It's the easy example when the kids are 11 and 12 to say, no, they shouldn't manage the money yet. We need to restrict their access until a certain age or now they're 40 and 41, but neither of them has a job and they can't manage money and budget appropriately. And, and now I need to restrict them on an ongoing basis. But if you flip that and say, okay, no, my kids are grown. They're good kids, they're, you know, have good jobs, you know, they manage money well. I really don't need to restrict them anymore. Well, then you, you think about the other side of it and say, well, what is there that I need to protect them from? In other words, if they were to receive an inheritance, I no longer have to protect them from themselves, but what other risks do they face? You know, if they're married, there is at least the risk that they could be, that they could get divorced. If they're a business owner, they could have a bankruptcy or they could get sued. Uh, any of us who drive a car have liability risk, right? We could hit somebody and get sued. How do I structure the inheritance to protect against those risks? And, and the concept there is just extending on the concept of a trust, but now post-death. We're saying, okay, 
well, if, you, if your child's inherited and they're old enough to manage the money themselves, we can have their share held in an ongoing trust that was created by your original trust. And now it's kept separate from their personal and marital, marital assets, and therefore it's separate from their personal and marital liabilities as well. Right. Yeah, and I think then, you know, there's different wealth, wealth predators, sort of speak, you know, liabilities, lawsuits, um, bad choices, right? Yeah. And taxes, which uh, that's a, another conversation kind of deals to on how we structure some of it. And that's really where being coordinated between the investments in the estate, I think is really in, in estate planning more important because yeah. each aspect can do something different as far as the taxes. But considering how you want to be protected from all these wealth predators, so to speak, and for your kids is another conversation. So yeah, yeah, I like that ter term and that reference there, wealth predators, because it really does get at, you know, who is who is potentially actually coming after this wealth, right? It's yeah. not just that liability risks exist, it's that what, when you do inherit wealth, there is risk that comes with that, right? There are parties, you know, uh, out there who, who are coming after that wealth or who would like to come after that wealth. Right, right. So, well, I know I, you know, try to keep this, short and I want to switch over to another topic that I think is just important because a lot of what we've been talking about is after we're gone, which I think is always important, you yeah. know, because um, none of us are invincible, you know, and something, and I, I think one <clears throat> thing, and I talked about this some too, is people will put off estate planning because they hate to talk about, they don't want to think about them dying, right? Yeah. And I'm like, but the fact is it doesn't change it, right? Just because you don't have an estate plan doesn't mean that you're an exempt from having an accident or doing something but what it it does is ensures that you protect the ones that you love and i always say are you gonna leave them like a legacy or a mess you know and if right. right so this is important stuff to talk about and everyone needs to look think about it you know young having kids and you know even if you're watch you know you're retired and you're good then this is something you should be having the conversation with your kids about to make sure they're doing it are they naming you know are they taking care of their kids which will be your grandkids right and kind of <clears throat> on that way yeah. but there is also a flip side of estate planning that i think we need to address at least a little and that's where if somebody becomes incapacitated you know and maybe oh. instead of being killed in an accident you're injured you can't make the decisions for yourself you're in the hospital whether it's for a short time or a long period whatever it is right you have a stroke oftentimes you know we, we hit on this a little last week with shana too but oftentimes this husband and wife think well we do everything joint therefore we're fine yep. um, but if you don't have i always call that the power of attorney form like the most important document in in the in the world financial world because it's the only thing that gives you access all the time but so if yeah. you want to shed some light on that and why it's in yeah it's a, it's a great it's a great point to make and you're right so often even when clients come in you know they've sort of fast forwarded to the conversation about death because that's where they think the big concern is but if you think about it you know the the power of attorneys and the incapacity planning that's the one area that actually impacts you right, right. you know post death it's impacting people i care about but I'm gone, right? So any result that comes out of it isn't gonna impact me. It's just gonna impact my kids or my spouse, et cetera. But with incapacity planning, especially what if it's a temporary incapacity? You, know, you need to make sure that your life continues on as normal while you're incapacitated. And, and you know, the way you do that is with the power of attorney document. And um, there are two, typically two separate and distinct powers of attorney, a financial power of attorney and a medical power of attorney. 
the the financial power of attorney, I, you know, you're right. It's the most important document. If somebody becomes incapacitated, it's the key to running their life and keeping things moving. It's the key to making sure you can pay their bills and you can file their tax returns and you can, you know, withdraw from their IRAs for their benefit and make sure they're provided for. <clears throat> That's it. That person sort of becomes the quarterback of your life, right? They're running everything. They're they're following up on your mail. They're making sure the home is taken care of. And you're, you're spot on. You know, married couples think this is automatic. I'm married, so if I'm incapacitated, my wife can manage everything for me. And we always say there are no automatic designations in estate planning. And people get confused because they think, especially in Wisconsin, they think, well, it's a marital property state. So that means my, my spouse automatically can manage everything. No, marital property just means your spouse owns half of everything from a from a right to access and ownership perspective. It does not mean if they're not listed on the account that they can manage it. It doesn't mean that they can make your medical decisions if you get sick and can't make your own decisions. And you know, sort of a similar concept here, but what are we protecting against? Well, if we don't have a power of attorney document, then the court has to decide who makes our decisions. And it's accurate to say the court will probably appoint my spouse, but why, if I'm incapacitated, would I want my wife to have to petition a court for a guardianship just to be able to make a medical decision or just to be able to access my 401k? Uh, those, are things, those are burdens that we really typically don't want to put on anyone, especially our spouse, especially in a time of crisis. Right. Yeah, I think that's a key. We, we talk to everybody about that because if I ask them, if I give them a choice, you know, if I could grow their money, you know, yeah. double in two years, but they can't access it or I, you know, I grow it half that, but you can get it at at any time, which one would you choose? And they're always going to choose the one that they can get at. Right. So yeah. I always argue as a financial advisor, growth and stuff is important. Yes. However, access to your money is the most important thing. And that is something you have to have this document for, right? And as far, and a single just is just as important because now you're kind of, I just had this conversation with someone yesterday. If you don't do it, you know, then you're up to whoever the court's going to appoint. And if you're single, I mean, if you have kids, it might be one of them. Okay. Uh, but if you don't have kids, you're kind of up to whoever decides they want to step up to plate and do it. And then the person who wants to step up the plate might not be the person that you would have chose to do it. Right. So, you might, can, right. It might not be motivated by the reason you would want someone to be motivated because it is somebody who all of a sudden has access to all of your accounts, your money, if they're, if they're appointed in that context. So <clears throat> you're right. You know, a lot of times, especially if, if you have a single client who doesn't have kids, right that you, they might say, well, why do I need to do estate planning? Why do I need to worry about this? Well, if nothing else, they should be in, intently concerned about the incapacity planning because it's not even, there, there's no way to draw a natural who should make the decision, right? Is it a parent of theirs? Is it a sibling? Do they have six siblings and only get along with two of them? Is it a friend? You know, because people so often think, well, I have to pick someone in my family, right? That's just what I'm, I'm supposed to do. The answer is no, you can pick whoever you want. And, um, you know, if, you're, if your lifelong friend is a better and more trusted decision maker than, than your, you know, your younger sister or your older brother, then you absolutely should name them. But the court isn't going to think of them as a natural uh, power of attorney, right? Or a natural guardian. They're, they're, they're not sort of in that pool of assumed individuals. So then all of a sudden my, you know, my younger brother's throwing his hat in the ring. He wants to make all my decisions. 
well, what are his motivations? Do we even get along? You know, do we do we think of managing money the same way? Um, you know, just when you rely on defaults, you, you you don't get a good result in most cases. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying that we have a, a story right now with a client that you know he's in a nursing home at this point, and before he had appointed a power of attorney, they didn't have kids, right? He's got nieces and nephews that are very more than motivated to do this, but probably not for the right reasons, right? Yeah. So. Um, again, that's, and as you said, who he appointed would not be who a court appointed, right? So yeah. it was who he chose and who he did. <clears throat> that brings up the point too, as we're kind of wrap, kind of bringing to an end, but another question I often get, and I think it's important that we talk about it at this point is, does a trust protect me from the nursing home is what people will kind of word it as, but really does it affect my, my state if I go into a nursing home? And I always tell them, no, that's two different planning tools, but do you want to elaborate a little bit on that and any, any suggest things you would, I know it's a whole other conversation, but at least. In a, yeah, but at least at a high level, pretty easy to go over this concept here that, you know, that if a client says, does, does a trust protect from the nursing you know, home? My answer is going to be the standard attorney answer, which is it depends. And, and what I mean there is it depends on what type of trust you're talking about, but by and large, most trusts and the trust most people are talking about, which is a living trust, like we've been talking about so far today. No, there's no protection from the nursing home. The, the living trust is, for all intents and purposes, you, right? It's the individual who creates it or it's the married couple that creates it. And that's true both from a use and access perspective, which is good, but it's also true from a liability perspective and creditor perspective that the living trust does not offer protection. That's a separate separate planning conversation. It's a separate planning tool. And frankly, any type of trust that you're going to create to protect assets from a nursing home, this would be an irrevocable trust. You're also limiting your own access to those funds. So it's, a, it's an entire shift of the conversation. And it's not always really the best fit of a planning tool because if I'm going to protect a million dollars from the nursing home, I also have to give up access to that million dollars. Um, and that's not terribly attractive for most of us, you know, unless we have, unless we have a whole bunch of it and it's fine to slice off a million, right? But that's not most of us. Most of us build up our, our estate first and foremost to use ourselves. Um, so, you know, sometimes that conversation actually reverts back to a, to a financial planning conversation. Right. Yeah, I was going to just say that a lot of times what we say, it, it's part of a financial, you know, once we got the retirement plan and financial plan, depending on, I always say we have to plan for retirement income first, because I know you're going to need income, right? Yeah. And then depending on the structure and where we have, if there's money that we don't need for income, or it's not earmarked for something specific, then we look at how we can use it to protect, you know, uh, for long-term care costs. And the other only caveat, on, and usually anything you're doing in the financial world right now provides you better protection than in the legal world when it comes to, you know, from the nursing home. What the only caveat is that if you have a spouse yeah. you know, that uh, that's going in or needing care, this is something that they'd want to talk because there's certain things to do to at least to make sure that you protect the spouse at home, right? You know, and, and protect them. And there's, and sometimes, I mean, we had a client just two years ago or so that was, and it wasn't stuff that was all done ahead of time. It was kind of done then. Okay, now how do we structure this to protect her the best way possible? So. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we say it every time when, when clients ask us about the nursing home, we say your conversation starts with your financial advisor, it starts from a protection, a planning, and potentially insurance perspective. Um, and we're the last resort because you're not going to like the outcomes of some of the strategies that we can employ. 
you're right about the spouse. If a spouse is going into the nursing home, there are things we can do to protect and optimize the situation for that, that community spouse, the spouse who's not in the nursing home. But the conversation in a proactive sense should always start on the, on the financial planning side. Yeah, exactly. And I just wanted to kind of clarify that as we're talking about incapacity, because that's another big concern. So, yep. well, I, you know, as we kind of wrap it up and summarize today, you know, we went through a will and a trust and how they both can designate beneficiaries for you, the way that they're distributed, the way the assets are distributed and who's in control of how they're distributed um, is a little bit different. You know, a will is more on a reactive basis where it happens kind of after death. A, a trust is more a proactive basis where you're aligning. If it's done right, you're aligning your assets with the trust now so that it's uh, easier later. Um, a trust will avoid probate. A will is, you know, kind of fought out in the probate, probate course. So, but again, if you're coming, you're not sure what's best. It really starts with a conversation, yep. you know, on what makes most sense for you, because while you, it's good to have an idea of the basics of this, just like with a lot of financial um, planning tools and strategies, it really becomes down to what makes most sense for you. And it's not always the same, the same thing. And kind of bringing that back into the beneficiary designations. The one thing I always tell people, whether you use a will or trust, or, you know, I like how you refer to them as mini estate plans, okay? And it, you could have a bunch of mini estate plans and that might accomplish your goal too. That's fine, but you do need to make sure you check them because I think oftentimes people forget to check beneficiary forms when life's yep. changed. The other issue we've seen sometimes is they name a spouse and nobody else. So if you and your spouse are, you know, somewhere and killed in a car accident together, now it's again up to, not only is it up to the court to administrate, it's up to the court to decide who gets it. So having those um, beneficiary designations, I think are important or some safeguards to pull assets in, you know, using that. And then, you know, wrapping it up, estate planning isn't just about planning for your death. It's also planning in case you become incapacitated and making sure you have the right documents in place so that someone can take care of your make health decisions, take care of your financial decisions, kind of make sure your life runs smoothie. Even if you're you know, a couple, you need to have this in place with the financial power of attorneys. Otherwise, again, you go back to the courts and you know, I think Shana put it that nice the other day too. Like, do you really want the courts to, you know, be in charge of picking anything for you? And probably not. So um, we need to plan for those things ahead of time too. And that's the only thing that gets you access. And as far as long-term care planning goes, it really becomes down to a financial conversation first when we're going through the retirement plan, your financial plan. There's yep. some legal things that can be done. And usually they're done more on a, as like, a last resort or um, kind of basis, if that makes sense, you know? So yeah, absolutely. a pretty good wrap up. Do you have anything you want to add with that, Peter? No, that was a great wrap up. Great summary. And again, I appreciate you inviting me here and, and uh, giving us a chance to, to chat about this topic. Yeah, well, I always like, I, I know that when Shane and I were talking last week, where we're very aligned as we start with that conversation, you know? And so, um, for those, we, I put your uh, email on the web in our description here. You can contact Shane and Peter directly, or obviously contact us and we'll make sure we set it up. Um, if you want to hear from Shane and more on the purpose side, it's in our women in wealth week and you kind of can log in and see that. And she's and put one of your questionnaires in there to kind of see what it, what it is and get going. But it is something we don't want to put off and just ignore and procrastinate on because 
yes, when you're gone, it won't affect you. Right. But it, it affects your legacy and you have to think about how you want and the, and the people that you love. And again, the incapacity thing could very much affect, you know, maybe you're out of it and you don't realize it anyway, who knows, but it affects the type of care you're getting. If you don't have somebody that's, you know, you haven't, you lose control. And I think one thing that is true for almost all of us is we've worked hard, we built what we have, and we want to retain the control, right? I want what I've worked for to go to who I want it to go to, right? Um, and I want it to take care of me the way I would want it to be taken care of if something were to happen to me. And the only way to re retain that control is by doing the planning. Yep. So, completely hmm. agree. Well, thanks for joining today, Peter. Enjoy. Uh, hopefully have a great weekend. And again, anybody has questions, we'll make sure you get in touch. I would start with a conversation. You know, if you haven't done it and you haven't done anything, that's the one thing that I really appreciate you, Peter, you and Shana, is you don't charge for those conversations. And I think those come and just like we don't, but those conversations are really key. It all starts with a conversation. So if you want to talk to them, uh, just put it in the message, send me in a private message, whatever. And we'll make sure you get in touch with Peter or Shana. Great. Thanks again, Michelle. Enjoy your weekend and, and appreciate you. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.